Our daughter, Caitlin Arquette, was murdered in Albuquerque, New Mexico on Sunday, July 16, 1989. They got her at night. I have lived that evening over so often in my dreams that by now it has become an extension of myself. When I go to bed, it runs through my head like a videotape, the images sharp and precise, the dialogue unchanging, except that with each repetition there are new things I notice. The setting is always the same, of course. It's our family room. Although we no longer live in that house, I can picture it perfectly. The rug, a rich rust color, muted by pet hair, as our cat and cocker spaniel shed in the summertime. The brown and white couch and loveseat with cushions molded into irreversible slopes and hollows by years of accommodating the bodies of sprawling teenagers. Bookshelves, lined with albums that are filled with photographs chronicling ski trips, campouts, Christmases, graduations, and birthday parties. A television set across from the sofa. A Navajo rug on one wall. On another, a painting by my stepmother that depicts my late father, white-haired, bearded, shirtless, on the porch of a beach cottage, baiting a fishing hook for a grandson. I am a writer by trade and am practiced in recreating scenes. It is easy for me to place myself back in that room again. Beyond the bay window there lies a tree-shaded yard, and beyond that an unkempt rose garden. When I peer out through the glass, I can see that it's raining, and the soft gray drizzle produces a premature twilight. Now that I have set the stage, I will bring on the players. Caitlin, 18, comes into the house. I hear the slam of the front door and the sound of her footsteps in the hallway and immediately know this is Kate and not one of her brothers. Her tread is solid and purposeful and distinctly her own. My husband Don and I have just settled ourselves on the sofa to watch 60 Minutes. I raise my eyes from the television screen and call, Is that you, honey? Who else? Kate answers and materializes in the doorway. I thought I'd stop by and say hi on my way to Susan's. The bad penny returns, says her father. You were here all morning. We see more of you now than we did before you moved out. The rain's depressing and Yoon's out with his friends, Kate says. The apartment feels weird tonight, and I don't like being there. She comes into the room and perches on the arm of the sofa. She is dressed in a short black skirt and a black and white striped blouse, and around her neck there hangs a chain with a tiny gold cross. She is wearing the sand dollar earrings I brought her from Florida the last time I visited her sister Robin. The earrings are rimmed with gold, the same burnished shade as her hair, which she is still determinedly trying to grow back to one length after last summer's disastrous asymmetrical cut. Each time I rerun the scene, new details leap out at me. For instance, how perfect her teeth are, straight, white, and even. Her complexion is perfect also, unmarred by the adolescent acne that torments her friends.
totally unblemished except for an odd little hollow on the ridge of her left cheekbone. When I caught my first sight of her in the delivery room, I gasped, my baby has a hole in her face, but the obstetrician assured me that the dent wasn't permanent. As it turned out, it was, but we came to regard it as a misplaced dimple and jokingly referred to it as God's fingerprint. Kate flashes her mischievous smile, but something doesn't feel right to me, and I regard her suspiciously. Her eyes are red, and the lids are abnormally puffy. You've been crying. I make it a statement rather than a question.